0: Do you ever wonder about the um, the things from your childhood that you remember, and and why you remember them? Now, there are some things that are monumental in life, and we know that they are going to be they're going to be lodged in our memories. That family trip to Disneyland when you were eight, or or that uh, that. I remember the first time that my dad took me to a Cincinnati Reds baseball game at Crosley Field. That is one of those moments when, that, that I know I will never forget. And when I was experiencing it, I knew I would never forget. But I'm talking about those everyday occurrences of life that for some reason stick in our minds. I, I was thinking about that recently of back to the first day of health class when I was in sixth grade. You know, why that sticks with me, I'm not sure, unless it maybe has something to do with this story. It was the first day, and, and we were meeting in health class, at that, that class, we met in the home economics room. And the home economics room, of course, is different than all the other classrooms. It's a lot bigger. They, have a, they, have, they had a couple of kitchens set up in there. They had a whole section for sewing and all the other things that a home ec teacher would do. And the, the home ec teacher... Was I don't know, I guess the word I would use is maybe quirky a little bit. Uh, probably, I mean, my impression was as a sixth grader is that she had been teaching a long time and it was getting to her. <laughs> Junior high children economic, home economics. And, and you know, I don't know how old she was as a sixth grader. She, I don't know she might have been 50 and to us she seemed 80. I don't, you know how it is with ages when you're children. I don't know. But... But she she was a very fastidious person and that place was immaculate and everything was in its perfect place. And she wanted to make sure whoever used her room left it that way and kept it that way. And so she had all these rules about what you could and couldn't do. Well, this room had two entrances, two doors to it. And the one door was, it opened into the room just like any other classroom. You walk through the door and boom, you're in the room. The other door, you came from the outside, the main hallway, and when you walked into that door, you came through a little hallway. And the hallway was, was lined with shelves, and the shelves had all kinds of home economic stuff on them. Pots and pans and, and dishes and sewing supplies and all the things that would be a part of a home economics class. And that's where she stored them. And she didn't want anybody touching her stuff. I understand that because, you know, sixth graders are going to want to touch the stuff, right? You walk by, oh, what's this? And the next thing you know, you're breaking half of it, tearing it up, messing, it over, messing with it. So she had these definite rules. Nobody walks through that door. Everybody who enters the classroom goes through this door. And so that first day of health class, our teacher, who, you know, the, who was the PE teacher as well, he's giving us this lecture and talking to us about not walking through that door. And, and he was emphatic, and he talked about it for probably five minutes. And you had almost a sense that if you walked through that door, you were walking into hell itself. I mean, you were, you were damning yourself if you walked through that door, so just don't do it, right? I mean, he was serious about it and tried to scare us as much as possible. And I suspect it's because she had scared him as much as possible about doing that. So we, the bell rings for class to be done, and we all get up and walk toward this door and look back, and there he goes right through that other door. And we're like, hey, what's going on? And when we, when we asked him about it, I think it was the first time I ever heard the classic answer. Do as I say, not as I do. And maybe that's why it sticks into my mind that that particular day of class. <clears throat> because it was like the introduction to adult hypocrisy. Now, I suspect I had experienced it, I just didn't remember it. But for some reason, that is lodged in my long-term memory, and I've never forgotten it. It would not be the last time I would experience adult hypocrisy. And certainly, I had a part to play in that with other people as well. And I've come to realize that, that hypocrisy is one of the great struggles of human nature... The minute we make a commitment about something, we have put ourselves in a position where we are susceptible to not meet the standard, to not measure up, to be hypocritical. We see it from the beginning of sin, entering the world with our first mother and father in the Garden of Eden. And we see it as we read through the scriptures over and over and over again, as it comes through history. We certainly see it, and it struck me recently, we see it prevalent in the middle of the passion narrative that John relates to us in the 18th and 19th chapters of his gospel. And the first place we see this is in the passage that we saw dramatized this morning. John 17, Jesus is in the garden, he is praying, and as chapter 18 opens... The uh, Judas and the representatives from from the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of, of the Jews, has come to arrest him. They take him, all the disciples scatter, and they take him back to Pilate's, uh, or to, uh, to the high priest's home. And they interrogate him throughout the whole night. Their goal is to try to get him to say something or do something that would convict him. He doesn't. But they aren't going to, that's not going to stop them. So as light dawns, they make their way to Pilate's palace. Pilate is the Roman governor. And as much power as the Sanhedrin has, they do not have the power to execute anyone. Only the Romans can do that. So they go to Pilate to convince him that Jesus should be executed. And here's what, it's, here's what John tells us. In verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. Excuse me. By now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? Now, first of all, I'm surprised Pilate would come out. I mean, you would think the Roman governor would say, I'm not coming out. You come into me. That just tells you how much power they have. And we'll talk about that more in a few weeks. But it is incredulous to me that these people who are conspiring to commit murder are still worried about being ritually pure to eat the Passover. Now, the Passover is a big deal. Now, the Passover takes us all the way back to the book of Exodus. The Israelites are are in Egypt. They they have been slaves for 400 years. And God sends Moses to rescue them and to go through the plagues. And the last plague is the angel of death. And God says to the Israelites, you paint blood around your doorpost and the angel will pass over you. And a part of that night was eating a special meal and eating it in a, in a very, significant, very special way. And from that moment on, God says, every year, this date, you eat the Passover. Because I don't want you to forget how important this night is. This is the night when Israel becomes a nation. And they actually become God's people. And he leads them out of slavery into freedom. To be the nation he has called them to be and to inherit the land that he has given them. It is the significant turning point in in the Israelite history. And over and over again through the scriptures, God says to them, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. Don't forget that. It's that significant. And for them to not be able to eat the Passover was devastating. Horrendous. But they had a law. If you went into a Gentile home, you were automatically unclean. And if you were unclean, you couldn't eat the Passover. That uncleanness would sort of, in essence, stick to you for up to 24 hours, maybe longer. But it was, And if you ate the Passover as an unclean person, you were putting yourself right in the crosshairs of God's wrath. You just don't do it. The closest thing I can equate that to for us might be Christmas. You're at your house. And you're stuck in your bedroom. And everybody else is opening gifts. Eating a big meal. Having a great time. You hear it all. You peek through the keyhole and you can see some of it. But you can't be a part of it. And you get nothing. How hard that would be. So the problem isn't that they want to remain ritually pure for the Passover. The problem is that's more important to them than the fact that they are conspiring to kill an innocent man. But the real issue here is not what they have done. The real issue is what we do. And how often we get wrapped up in rituals and laws and doing right things and at the same time treating people terribly and often not even seeing the duplicity in our behavior hypocrisy can come out in a variety of ways Especially when you start talking about obedience to God and, and, and the ways in which the church views obedience to God. If you grow up grown up in, in, in a conservative part of the church, you know, and even if you didn't, there are always things that you can do and you can't do. There are always, every church has their own set of, of laws and restrictions and rituals that you practice or don't practice. And we judge each other based on those things. It's not all bad. It's not always good. James Henry Wipe tells of a time when he was living, going to school in Oxford. And he loved to go to the Eagle and Child Pub, which was the place that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and that group of Oxford scholars would hang out. And they would share their work with each other. And they had a ritual of meeting there every week. And it has become a, a tourist place. For people who who love C.S. Lewis and and, uh, they they love learning about his life and they they go and visit the places where he visited and going to this pub is one of those places. And White says he was sitting in there one day, he he often went there, he was sitting there one day and he saw another group of tourists come in and uh, watch them leave. And after they left, the owner came by, muttering to himself, "Those stupid, idiot Christians." Actually, he used more colorful language than that, but you know that, that suffices you to get the idea. He's not happy with the Christians. And he said, "And he said, what's wrong?" He said, "You see these menus, these nice menus. I pay two pounds a piece for these menus. I ordered hundreds of them. I have ten left. These people keep coming in here, tourists, and they keep stealing them. And and." And, he's, and White looked around the walls and there were all kinds of plaques and mementos, things signed by Lewis and Tolkien and other people. And he said, it's a wonder they don't take those. He goes, oh, they would. He said, all those are reproductions. I wouldn't dare put out the originals on the walls. They'd be gone in a day. And he said, and the thing that gets me the most is that I've tried, I've printed up paper menus so they can at least have something. And I give those away, but they don't want those. They want these real menus. And they keep stealing them. And he says, these people who come and are interested in Lewis, aren't they all Christians? And White said, I thought to myself, a lot of those people who come in here would never think about ordering and drinking a pint of ale. But stealing from the proprietor, no big deal. And we don't even see it. We're obeying the rituals that we think are most important and ignoring things that are hurting people. And we see this throughout history. I mean, the the Crusades. In order to to defend the faith, we slaughter people. Martin Luther, father of the Reformation, someone we all look up to and, and believe God used in powerful ways, had a blind spot toward the Anabaptists. And, and, and he encouraged their be, them being persecuted, even murdered, because their beliefs were not his beliefs. They were godly people. And let's bring it down to us. How many times have we come to worship, had a great time in worship, and we walk out, and somebody says something, does something, and we jump down their throat? Or we have a great time in the prayer room. We spend an hour praying. We go home and, and, and we lambast one of our family members. Or we spend time reading the scriptures and, and we have this glorious time reading the scriptures and we go to work and we just mow down people left and right. And too often we don't really grasp the hypocrisy of that. Because we're doing the right things. We're following the right rituals. We're being obedient. We've just forgotten that Jesus says if you're going to sum up all the laws that we obey, it comes down to love. Loving God first, loving our neighbors ourselves. The problem isn't that we shouldn't mess with obeying God. The problem is that obedience of God ought to lead us to love people. They are not mutually exclusive. In the kingdom, these two things, obedience and love, are together. And we struggle with that in our sinful nature. I, I've i come to the conclusion that there is a formula, and I think, and I think this is right. Obedience to God plus mistreating people equals disobedience to God. Obedience to God plus mistreating people equals disobedience to God. If you're into math at all, you can have a string of a hundred even numbers And you add one odd number into that list and your answer is going to be odd. We can obey all the laws and the rituals of God as we define them. If we don't have compassion to people and love people and care for people, we have misunderstood the kingdom. And again, the answer is not to just say, well, we don't mess with any of those other things. Those are foundational We just do those and love. That's the point. It's so easy to get wrapped up. You know, Reinhold Niebuhr said that most of the evil done in the world is not done by evil people. It's done by people who perceive themselves to be good. And I'm convinced the the more we know and and the further along we get in the faith, the more conceited and arrogant we are tempted to be. And often our hypocrisy is rooted in that conceit and arrogance. We know a lot. We understand things. We figured out the checklist and we just check it off and we're good. And we know more than other people. And so we, can, we have the right to do what we want. John Wesley always felt torn between about what to do with people when they had some grand experience of God in their lives. On the one hand, he wanted them to share it with other people because it encouraged them about the experiences they might have in their life. But on the other hand, he, he saw so often the, people, the moment people shared those experiences, they became prideful about them. And it went from, look at what God has done for me, to look at me. And he continually debated about which way was best. Because the arrogance of human nature so easily slid into those people's lives, as it does ours. And what starts out as right and good, we can twist the wrong. The great theologian, pastor, Saint A.W. Tozer Talked about this. He said, you know, in our in our determination to be bold, we become brazen. In our in our desire to be frank with people, we become rude. In our our desire for watchfulness, we become suspicious. In our goal to be conscientious, we become overly scrupulous. We have this ability to take good things and twist them, which is, in a sense, the definition of sin. The answer is not to say we don't worry about obeying God's commands. The answer to our hypocrisy and our duplicity is the cross. Paul writes to the Philippians about people in the church there that are trying to convince people about legalism and that the answer to their faith is to be legalistic. And he has some harsh words to say for them to them. And then he says, look, if you want to talk about somebody who could earn the right to be legalistic, it would be me. And he gives them his heritage and and his training and all the things that he's accumulated, all the ways in which he might be able to say, I am right with God because I've done all these things. And then he says, all of that stuff. It's rubbish, it's trash, garbage. For me, it's about Christ. I want, to, I want to put that stuff aside because I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and I want to engage in his sufferings. And he says what we need to do is to come to the cross and let the cross remind us Of the need for humility. To remind us how sinful and needy and broken we are. And to fall at the foot of the cross. And to find our hope to be different. So we think we worship a God who wants us to be right. When he's calling us to do right. We think that we are worshiping a God who's more interested in protocol than in people. And Jesus gives us the example, standing there on the steps of of, of Pilate's palace, that it's about surrendering to God. You know, he he could have in a moment shredded those religious leaders. He he could have argued them to nothing. But he takes it. And he humbles himself, as Paul says, even to death on a cross. For us. For the one who surrenders himself to the will of God makes the way for us to find joy and peace and release through his cross so that we can become tributaries of God's love in this world. Love for people who agree with us and people who don't. Love for people who who embrace Christ and those who hate Christ. Christ. So that our obedience to God is always seen and viewed and lived in the context of Christ's love for us. Years ago, I I read a book and the author made statements something like this. In the church, there are only two kinds of people. Hypocrites. And forgiven Hypocrites. And the difference is the cross, it's the cross. Father, you know our struggle, our struggle to do right. Can so often lead us to treat people wrong. Forgive us. Create in us a humble spirit, humble hearts, that we might surrender ourselves to Christ and be transformed. Father, speak to us now. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Amen.